Oh, okay. Hey, everybody. Uh, no driving gloves again. Uh, we've had some pretty good interviews and a lot of releases lately. Hopefully, it's all uh, fitting your liking. I know we've got some extra time, but we don't have commute time. So, hopefully, you're getting all the shows in. You know, Tom Cotter was on recently. We just did the Bill Riley from uh, Riley Technologies, talked about the new uh, pressurized masks his our company's building, kind of outside of the racing realm. Um, who else we had? Jim Simpson recently, and we've got a couple of big names right around the corner. Don't want to announce in case they cancel, but we've got a couple of pretty big names, uh, possibly some TV people, possibly some uh, big YouTube people, but we're, we're working a little bit or at least pretending to work uh, during all this downtime. Yeah, I, I think you can mention one of them's name. Because that's pretty well if confirmed. If it's pretty well confirmed, Will's got, Will's got a friend. She, he's known for a while. You want to say who you're really trying to get on the show, Will, right now? Or? No, no, go, okay. go ahead. Uh, <laughs> Will's got this. We're, we're hoping to have Courtney Hansen on within the next couple of weeks, which will. <laughs> we're not hoping it's going to happen. Okay. We're okay? going to have Courtney Hansen on in the next couple there of weeks. There you go. So. Confidence, and, and, and baby. You got to have got a big it. announcement tied to that. So as soon as we get all the logistics worked out, her schedule, our schedules, and uh, actually we're going to drop everything for her. Uh, as- <laughs> our schedules are fine. <laughs> it's literally, it's, it's, it's up the, to her. It's the famous, uh, famous person that uh, we're, we're working around. But Trust me, she, she is bored out of her mind. She has, I mean, she's stuck at home. Well, she's in Florida. Get her on here. And, and Florida. Sorry, Adam. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, we don't. Um, we don't need no. to talk to our guest tonight. Let's get a different guest. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I cleared she, my schedule to be here. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we we have uh, Adam Martin back. We had him back, and like an idiot, I never looked up uh, the the show we had on. Had him on. Uh, it goes back to late fall, sometime late uh, August, September last year. We had Adam on. Maybe by the end of the show, I've looked it up. We talked about the $70 million Porsche and got some feedback because he was present there. But Adam works, um, he owns a company, Martin International, which is an ins- insurance firm in that. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but I gave everybody a little bit of homework uh, inspired by VinWiki, uh, the YouTube channel. I don't know if Adam saw the note, but we'll see if he did. If not, we'll might let him go last. But VinWiki did a thing, and I think they cheated a little bit they decided what car would you buy with your stimulus check? You know, the government sent us all $1,200. Uh, if you didn't want to spend, uh, if you didn't absolutely need it, you can go out, buy a toy with it, buy a car with it. What would you spend $1,200 on? Well, I wanted to keep our number at 1200. They let people cheat, go up to about two grand because shrewd negotiators. Now, yeah, all of them are car dealers. Uh, so they, they might be able to get $800 off, off a number or, or know the right deal. But we're sticking with about $1,200, and uh, we'll go ahead and find out what Will's got going on first. Well, I can tell you what I found, and I can tell you what I blew my $1,200 on. You know, I was just kind of bumming around Facebook Marketplace just to kind of see what was there. I actually found a 51 Chevrolet, 1200 bucks, pretty solid car. Um, it looks to be pretty much all there. And I was like, man, that, that's a pretty good buy. One of the coolest things I think I found was a uh, 96 Subaru Legacy. It was 1400 but 
I, I think I could get them down to 1200 you know? That's like the second Subaru you found on the inexpensive level. Because when I was trying to buy or spend $3,000 last year, which I unsuccessfully did, uh, you had a Subaru you threw out to me too. And I just never see these Subarus. Yep. So must be something for your neck of the woods and your in the country. They're not very popular up in, in my area. I don't know why they're, they're really awesome cars. They're built very well. They're safe and, you know, they're just, they're good cars. And I also found if you're willing to do a little bit of work, a 2005 Land Rover HSE for a thousand bucks, got a little body damage. They had the panels to fix it. So I thought that was a pretty that's good deal. The discovery? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's actually there. No, 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 no. It's a, uh, it's the it's Range Rover. Oh, it's not crap. the Discovery. Okay. Yes, the HSE. Oh my God, dude! For how much? Thousand bucks. Ooh, that one. A mm, little bit of work. Not done a whole lot, but you know, I mean, to the people that have owned them, they love them or they hate them. If you know how to work on them, you love them. If you don't know how to work on them. You hate them because they're always yeah, tearing that's, up. That's so. literally like you're either never going to have to touch it or it might cost you your right. house. <laughs> it's, the it, first it, part it, of your statement doesn't apply. You're always going to have to touch it and it's always going to be expensive. But they're hellacious uh, off-roaders and I mean really luxurious. It's just some of the little mechanical oddities about them. You know, they're a little bit more sorted now that Tata owns them. Friend that comes into the cigar shop all the time and he's on like his third or fourth and he got rid of his last one and ah, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And then he walked in a couple of weeks ago and goes, Hey, guess what I bought for a thousand bucks though. You can't really go wrong on that. If, if that actually runs at all, it's that's crazy. That's a crazy deal. What I actually just kind of blew my money on was, uh, gotten into go-karts at the shop and <laughs> it's uh yard carts yard carts only the motor has to be behind you're, the driver can't be a race car or whatever they are well that means you're gonna have to be on the the show we, we record on uh may 6th will i bought a uh i had a, i still had my go, my go-kart that my grandfather bought when i was like six years old two-seater you know it's really a cool looking vintage go-kart you know, make it make it a center steer, one seater. And I had a Briggs Raptor motor on it from twenty years ago. So I got it out, got it running, and I was man, I was getting blistered by everybody. So I'm like, all right, we're gonna fix this. I went and bought a brand new predator from Harbor Freight called uh, Arc oh Racing <laughs> Georgia. <laughs> bought a, a a billet flywheel, a billet rod, a racing cam, racing carburetor, fuel pump, crank. Uh, the, <laughs> the whole, the, the whole, the whole shebang. Oh my god! You know, <laughs> and so I put, I put this thing together the other night, me and Cameron. So I've built the track across the street from our house, and it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's not a real big track. So, but before I could, I could hold my cart wide open all the way around it. And it was, I mean, it wasn't real fast, but so I get out there with the new motor on my cart, a fresh tire. Cause it's still single wheel. I'm not going to live actually. I'm, I'm actually having to break going into the corner. Is the track decently smooth? Uh, half ass. If it ever gets decently smooth, I have a weapon to bring your way. <laughs> That's what I blew most of my, my sugar daddy 
On May 6th, we're supposed to interview David Pesciuto from uh, Make Something YouTube channel and uh, making it the podcast. He's a maker, woodworker, and all that. And he's recently, last fall, kind of stumbled into the go-karting hobby. We'll have him on kind of new to the car world. I thought it'd be neat to have a car newbie and have him come on. And exactly what Will said, David's talked about on, on his podcast a little bit, that motor from Harbor Freight, that build kit, things like that. David's building his own chassis. So we're looking forward to having him on May 6th and we need to have Sean, the go-kart guy, and uh, Will, for sure, with their go-kart experience. For 212 cc's, this thing's making 15, 16 horsepower. And I didn't stroke it or, or really anything like that. It was basically what is stock in the engine is the piston, the valves, the crank. Everything else was changed. You can stroke it and put bigger valves in it and stuff like that. But with our track, it really wouldn't do any good to have any more power. I'm already overpowering it anyway, but it sure to hell is fun. So, Sean, what are you spending $1,200 on? Because we'll rehash all we, of this again We can literally weeks. do a whole show on this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we can spend that into a whole show. Yeah, again, we're doing that in two weeks. <laughs> I, I looked on Racing Junk. Found a couple things on Racing Junk and found a couple things on VW Vortex. Um, Racing Junk is weird. Racing Junk is not all Racing Junk. Racing Junk is racing and street junk. I found a little 96 Honda Civic hatch that runs for 400 bucks on Racing Junk. I don't know whether any of y'all have ever liked or driven. John, I know you have, actually. I'll I'll take that back. You used to be into uh, CRXs. Yeah, and I couldn't find one for $1,200. Yeah, I mean, they, they, that doesn't exist. But a Civic, yeah. I mean, you could literally take a little Honda Civic for $400 and go on eBay for another $800 and build an autocross Slayer. $250 coilovers, strut tower brace, uh, rear uh, shock tower brace, and some sway bars. Tires would throw you out of that $1,200. For, that little car would be absolutely epic, and it'd be just a great little weekend toy, and it's an adult go-kart, going back to the go-kart theme. There was also, on Racing Junk, there was a 240SX mini stock car. Already gutted, already caged, already set up for asphalt oval, rear-wheel drive mini stock, runs, needs a clutch, 1100 bucks. I found a 88 Volkswagen Cabriolet convertible for $1,000. It is a basket case that runs. The top is completely shot. It's cool. My mom had Cabriolets the whole time I was growing up. I used to borrow them all the time and head to Virginia Beach, and, and we used to go cruising. And Yeah, I mean, there's, there's stuff out there, man. It's crazy. I, so which one are you buying? <sighs> I probably... Because of where I am right now, and because I really want to go roundy round racing, I'd probably buy the 240SX. Buy a go-kart and come roundy racing. Oh, is it an oval? It's not. A, it's an oval track that you have. It's not a road course. Yeah, it's an oval track. You're in trouble. Who wants to go? Adam, did you find anything? Or were you ready? Or we jump into Derek? Like every good student, I waited to the last minute, did a little, little internet research here. <laughs> yeah, we watched and, you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly. Did you hear my mouse clicking away? You know, when uh, when push comes to shove, you can find some really good stuff. And it's surprising. Uh, I, I'm glad Will already mentioned Subarus because uh, I'm a huge Subaru fan. And I've been looking for a project car. And lo and behold, there's a beautiful 2002 Impreza 2.5 RS uh, near me. 1200 bucks. Got good looking silver paint, silver interior. Could use a rear bumper cover. It's like the body's in great shape. I don't see any visible rust from the photos on Marketplace. 
it could be a great chassis uh, platform to do a turbo upgrade, TI upgrade to it. Uh, I know there's a carbon fiber and aftermarket body kits that you can really have a lot of fun with these cars. And plus the whole driveline is essentially interchangeable with a more contemporary STI. A lot of guys do the 2005s uh, and back. This one, uh, this one's got me seriously interested. So I'm, <laughs> I might have to save this to give them a call tomorrow because I can use, use a new little little four-door uh, hot, hot car. So this could be it. It might be the time. Yeah, could be motivated to sell. Who knows? <laughs> kind of interesting. Everybody's doing some sort of a project hot rod race car. Kind of dying to see what Derek's got. Okay, well, let's see. I found an Alice Chalmers and a Husky 48-inch mower deck. Is that not what I was supposed to be looking for? Well, you live in Kentucky. That is probably a road-legal vehicle. Sounds you got to cut that bluegrass. Exactly. All right. Well, I I have struggled with this. I um, I'm never going to find a car that I truly love for twelve hundred dollars. I don't know. There's just there's nothing as old as I like for that kind of money. There's nothing steam powered out there for twelve hundred dollars. Exactly. Well, yeah, <laughs> you got to dig it up out of the ground. You know, find parts for it in other burial pits, things like that. You just hire me to make the parts. No, shut up, Will. Why don't I just make them here? <laughs> <laughs> as long as I turn them on a lathe, I'm good. Did you come across something, or are you in the same boat I am? Here's my previously viewed uh, vehicles that I've been looking at over the last few days. Just to give you an idea of the range of vehicles I have looked at. Let's see. We've got an 86 BMW 3 Series. We've got an 88 Pontiac Fiero. Oh, I should probably say the prices on these, shouldn't I? <laughs> Uh, the 86 BMW 3 Series is 800 bucks. Uh, it's a not-running project. 1300 for an 88 Pontiac Fiero. Now, obviously, these are or best offers, so I would get it. Let's put it this way: I'd get them under 1200. 86 Nissan 300ZX that I was looking at. See a 71 Porsche 914 that needs floor pans. What's the price on the 914? Because I came across a few of those, and I was actually surprised to see them in the three and four thousand dollar range. It's 1800 or best. And then um, the, the one that probably I, I you know, would probably wind up going with, if I had to go with a go pick up a running driving car that you can get in and drive away, is the 1993 Volvo 240 sedan. You would buy Volvo. I'd buy a Volvo. But honestly, <laughs> no, the, the one that I would be most tempted to get that I found, although it is all the way out in Washington State, there's a 63 Ford Falcon convertible for 800 bucks because it does not have the engine and transmission. And I happen to have a spare engine Falcon engine and transmission here at my garage that I could put in. Well, I made the rules harder on me than anybody else because I go, you know, I don't want to, I want to spend $1,200. I don't, I took transportation costs in at the maximum I was going to spend is $1,200. So I only looked at cars, $1,200 and less. So I, I dug through and, you know, my rule is I had, it had to run well enough for me to get home. And I did find a rampage that probably would have run well enough for me to get home. <laughs> really? You found a rampage for, for 1200 bucks? I found two. So <laughs> one of them did, one of them didn't run. One was an 82 that didn't run. And one was an 84 that kind of sort of maybe did. That green one that we stumbled on. Well, let me see. Let's see if the screen shares here because I found this. 2500 Oh, wow. No way. That, that has to be blown up. 
There's there's no condition, way. Runs great. Current tags. All maintenance. Holy crap! That's eleven grand, guys. I can't see like it. I, I was going to say it's either like everything on Facebook that's twelve hundred dollars and they mean it's twelve thousand or fifteen thousand yeah. some yeah. arbitrary. Zero. So I go and no, but hey, for eleven hundred bucks, I would buy. It's a Dodge Ram twenty five hundred five point nine Cummins diesel, one hundred forty seven thousand miles, lift kit, everything. So we know that's not true. This one was believable. It's a uh, Audi A4 convertible. It's twelve hundred. It might mean twelve thousand, but it all kind of depends on the problems it has and such. One hundred twenty-two thousand five hundred. But where I got, I spent hours. I probably spent about eight hours looking for holy things. crap, and I did you know anything that I wanted. MR2s, CRXs, RX7s, 914s, Porsches in general. Went through everything until my iPad crashes 12 times in Facebook Marketplace. I did auto temp and I got fed up. So I'm taking my $1,200 and I'm just going to buy a dang Rolex. <laughs> I found a 1965 Rolex two-door uh, stainless steel watch, $1,195. Um, I'm going to have more fun with that and I'll time myself as I start walking places. It's, it, is a, it is a two-door, so it could tie it, it into a car. even more tied in. You got the Rolex 24 hours of Daytona. There's, there's a whole lot of Rolex. Yeah. You can tie got a leather I'll, rip I'll give you that, John. That's about as creative as I've ever seen John get, so we have to give that to him. I mean, that's impressive. And to plug, th- this is at uh, Levy's Fine Jewelry in Birmingham, Alabama, which is where I bought Zara's ring and various other jewelry. So if, and I just bought a watch from them. If, so if, if you want to go buy another r- race down there, this one just kind of looked appealing. I mean, it was the cheapest Rolex they had, but Hey, twelve hundred bucks, twelve hundred bucks. But that's where I got. I want to go. I'd literally be pretty awesome when the go karts and the Alice Chalmers shows up there to buy that with you. (laughs) (laughs) I want you to put the Dodge truck back up there because hell, I want to go buy. If that's eleven hundred dollars, I want to. There's no way. way There's no way that's eleven hundred dollars unless it's uh, money laundering. That's called clickbait. We've invited Adam on the show to talk about insurance. Well, I'd like to know how much I would need to insure my $1,200 car for. You could insure it for $1,200, but if you upgrade your stuff like Will and put a bunch of money and axles and aftermarket parts, uh, then you got to have a conversation with your favorite insurance guy and make sure you got the right policy coverage amount to respond to it. Because if someone walks by and steals it, rips it off from the go-kart track or anything else, you want to make sure that maybe you're covered for what you've spent uh, already in it. Never hurts to ask and have a conversation and what you pay for it isn't necessarily what you want to insure for either. Like I said, Adam owns this company, Martin International Insurance Brokerage. Some of his background, uh, he was a vice president with uh, Hagerty uh, Insurance. He's also a McPherson College grad. Upcoming episode, Amanda Gutierrez from McPherson. We interview her. Adam's also graduated a year or two after Will and I and took even more advantage of some of the great improvements that we talked about with Amanda and McPherson having. Hagerty and, and his office was at the Peterson. He's now relocated. He's outside of New Orleans. Uh, We just thought we'd have him on to, he's an independent broker. So I believe he can sell you insurance from, you know, he represents multiple companies as opposed to having somebody just on with Hagerty and spinning Hagerty or somebody just on with Grundy, spinning Mm -hmm. Grundy. We put out on social media a couple weeks ago, some insurance questions, and I got some responses on that. I had some of my own. 
Derek obviously had one there. Yeah, but mine was sarcastic. He alluded to one that's not <laughs> on the list, but is becoming more and more discussed, and some people aren't aware it exists. Semi-joking about Will insuring his go-kart on the racetrack. What do you know about racing insurance and track insurance, uh, Adam? Are, are you familiar with any of that? Or I am, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a popular thing when you can afford it. <laughs> let's, let's, let's be honest. <laughs> If you are a, I mean, most car guys are going to, you know, I have a, I have a Camaro. I like Subarus. There's lots of cars that can be street strip sort of applications. Your daily driver turned weekend racer, autocrosser, your policy is probably not going to respond to you drifting in a, in a, in a parking lot around cones, uh, especially when your buddies are filming you and you smash into the light pole. You really got to be careful when you're out there. But once you've kind of graduated from a, your street car to a dedicated track car, Maybe you're working with a, a race shop. You're kind of doing an arrive and drive situation. It's where you can buy track time insurance or high performance driving education insurance for one day or one weekend. TA and some other racing organizations have a program where you can opt in for season long insurance to cover your car. And with that, though, you've got to be careful and read the fine print. It's not like auto insurance for your daily driver. There's typically no liability. We're all good drivers, right? But maybe in the red mist, maybe you're in that corner too deep and you plow into the guy next to you, you push him off the road course and then he flips. He's got a major personal injury. Um, you know, he, he might file a lawsuit or go after you. It all kind of depends on the the racing spirit of the environment. So there's typically no liability coverage. So you're still, you got to be a responsible driver while you're out there, um, especially kind of an amateur or a semi-amateur um, versus sort of, you know, a NASCAR or Formula One driver. Those are whole different rules and stuff for most mortal car guys uh, who are taking a purpose-built car that maybe they built or they've commissioned to build. Uh, be responsible for yourself. The coverage you can buy is like physical damage to your car. I mean, you spend a bunch of money on graphics, bodywork, suspension. If you swap paint with somebody else on the track, there's coverage for that. It usually comes with a high deductible, $10,000, $15,000. And, but then it'll cover you up to maybe $100,000 worth of the vehicle value. It's definitely worth a conversation with your insurance agent or uh, someone in the field to kind of narrow down what kind of racing you're doing, what kind of car, what kind of value of your car, how often are you racing, are you a licensed driver. There's lots of variables, but long and short of it, there is more sports insurance out there. But to be honest, I'd say 90% of the people just run without insurance on the racetrack. It is a given. They just know it's on their own checkbook and they try to be respectful and, and as safe as possible. But, you know, things do happen. It's out there. But again, it's not, not cheap, but it's available. I know a GT3 RS owner. He's on his second one because he's glad he had track insurance on the first one. <laughs> he's actually a pretty good driver, but it's just one of those things that happen. I mean, it's racing. Sounds like his policy should come with driving lessons. <laughs> Bill Riley said it on the, the episode that's currently out, or m most recent release at our recording time here. When you're racing, you have to be prepared to come home from the track one day without the car or to leave the car at the track because... Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's part of racing. We built a... Strictly an autocross car. I mean, it is street legal. You can drive it on the road. It's pretty much trailered to good guys events and it's running autocross or trailered to LS Fest and uh, stuff like that. So, I mean, is that something that you could definitely insure even, you know, parking lot racing, autocross, stuff like that? 
Yeah, uh, great question. And thanks for clarifying because uh, it kind of falls back to do-it-yourselfers or custom-built cars that have that dual application, that street and strip. You've invested a lot of time in engineering, money, fabrication, leather, whatever you want built into your race car. Even if it's not registered with the state, like, you know, when you register a car at the state, that's going to require the insurance. Now, when you build a car, you sort of now have this tangible asset and you're kind of putting it out there in the world and you're putting in a trailer and driving it around. Well, it's exposed to elements and other traffic and it can come loose inside the trailer. And that's a lot of money you've got sitting inside there. And that car, that asset can be insured. So if it's a $50,000 car, if it's a hundred and fifty, if it's a $40 million car, it can be insured. And your car will, uh, you're taking a good guy's event it's covered if it's on a you know most standard collector car policies it'll be covered while it's you know sitting at home in the garage it's covered while you're loading it on and off the trailer when you're trailering to event anywhere across the country once you get to the track or the venue or the site that's where it gets a little bit gray but you kind of have to think to yourself where is that line in the sand where i'm going from driving from my pit or my paddock stall to the live sort of racing course do i pass these orange cones and now it's just me in this track environment kind of a lot of my race guys kind of visualize when you kind of buckle in helmet on, that's when your insurance is going to stop most typically for a, a standard auto policy and stuff. It's super common. I mean, Will, what you're describing is a purpose-built track autocross car, but it's the same thing for Pebble Beach show cars. They're built, they're they're shown, they're not driven anywhere. They're trailered to and from events. They just happen to drive onto a golf course. Your clients and many people are driving to a parking lot, but again, got to be mindful of like the venue when you drive on to a, a race course that sort of dedicated event where one car at a time is, is doing a time trial or an autocross that's when you're going to be on your own checkbook and then i say with one caveat always got to check your policy there might be rules there you might have gotten special permission from the insurance company because you've got a super rare car maybe you're going to do an exposition lap a demonstration lap during the lunch hour while everyone's back in the pits. I have gotten things done where you're a special invitee to an event and you're not going to be driving all 10 tenths, but you're going to be out there going through the gears, letting everyone see it run and sound and, and listen to it. But uh, you still might have coverage because you'll be by yourself and you're a little bit more of a controlled environment. When you're spending big dollars and commissioning special cars and custom builds, Absolutely. That's an insurable asset. Take care of that first. And then we can kind of work out how you use it, what you're doing with it and and where the insurance needs to go to respond and pick you up in case you get get some damage to it. We have the the Grundy hot rod shop insurance. I mean, it doesn't matter what I'm driving, where I'm at, if it's in my trailer, if it's in my shop, you know, it's covered. When I have care, custody and control over the vehicle, I'm not too worried about it. Obviously, I'm not going to be driving a customer's car on the autocross. I may put it through the ringer out here by my house, but <laughs> and it, it, it was, that was a question for me to pass along to my customers. I say, well, it's a, it's a good point because a lot of us need to trust restorers, aftermarket accessory shops, share your baby with someone who's you know more mechanically inclined than you to, to tune it, fix it the way you want. And when and you said the key words there, Will, when it's in someone else's care, custody, and control, that is uh, a, a very responsible automotive business owner is going to have that garage keeper's coverage in it. They're keeping your car in their garage kind of very simple, basic stuff, but that means it's in your control, Will. So you're responsible for fire, theft, you know, keeping the doors locked and and keeping the car safe. And even while you're driving it, your insurance policy is going to respond and look after it. But as soon as that customer comes back, takes the keys and drive home, 
it, you know, the cat, the hat kind of goes back onto them and the ownership responsibility for the car is theirs uh, on their drive home and, and while they park it in their garage and so forth. So it's a, it's, you're, you're very smart to have that, that product in place to look after you and all your employees. And especially when you're trailering things around, oh, you uh, have to. You, you're smart to have that looking after you first. I've got a, just a quick question is, is that pertains to actual track day insurance. Yeah, you go from the the regular you know street car, street truck, way street driven yep. truck insurance policies that are comp and collision to the shop policy that Will was just talking about, and then you have the actual track day policies that you can get that will cover cover you for a specific event. Are all of those more targeted to like taking your your car out to Barber or you know down to to Nola where you're at uh, Adam or any of those track day policies like do you have a specific drag race policy? Do you have a specific is there an autocross policy that you just a rider that you can get for a weekend event? Did you answer that and I missed it? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. There, there, there is a like a an, an event by event, like a you know weekend pass, if you will, or or a series. If you put yourself in the shoes uh, of an underwriter, let me help you put yourself in the mind of an insurance underwriter. Like they, they want to control risk rather than just like everybody out there running go karts in their front yard. They would rather you be on a track and hopefully there's a track with some an ambulance or some safety protocols maybe there's good lighting it's all about control and if, if me as an independent driver going to do an event if i want any likelihood of qualifying for insurance i'm, I'm going to want to go to a reputable track with with good facilities i'm going to want to do it with a sanctioning body or an organizing body that's got a good reputation. Any of the national associations are going to have corner workers, marshals. They're going to have, you know, the proper waivers in place when you enter their premises. Those are some of the things insurance underwriters are looking for. They just want to see that these kind of boxes are checked. I mean, it's, it's like going applying for a, a mortgage, right? There's just things you got to do. So the underwriter is going to say, you know, what kind of car? Where's the venue? Who's running the show? Do we know? Have you run the show for several years? or just a brand new event. There's going to be some telling things like that. If you're getting into it, trying to decide one weekend over the other, err on the side of the more reputable, brand-recognized, more experienced uh, shanksing body. And when you apply for that insurance, look at that piece of paper that the underwriter is going to look at on your profile, and they're going to say, oh, they're going to NOLA, or they're going to Birmingham, or they're going to Daytona. Oh, the SCCA is going to run this, or VMCA is going to run it. It's just, uh, they want to see see some details and then more likely they're going to you know, right. offer you their rate. And again, it comes with deductibles or coverage rules, limitations, the ceiling, but you can still yeah. still cover your car um, and, and be, be protected. If you, again, you want to write the check and uh, you know, John's got a good friend that uh, already, already used it. And I, I've got customers that have used it, paid for it, but have never had to turn in a claim and they sleep better at night knowing that they have it. And I've got other guys kind of like your personal risk tolerance. If you're getting into racing and you're going to a racetrack, I mean, like Will said, like you got to be prepared to put your life on the line. You might not be coming home and your car might not be coming home. There's guys who are totally fine with that and don't want the insurance. They would, you know, rather buy tires and fuel uh, and brakes uh, and just have another good weekend. It's really, it's having a, a gut check with yourself. If it, if it was all gone tomorrow, would you be okay with that? Or would you like a check? to kind of get back in the business of racing. Right. No, that's cool. I, yeah, it was more... I hope that helped. It was more a question of, of if there was type of racing-specific coverage. It, it just sounds like you just have to be wary of, of the sanctioning body that's covering it and the, the size of the event, the way the events run. That makes perfect sense. Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah, there's... I mean, motorsports, if you think of it from any, any insurance underwriter, you could say just motorsports in general is a category of insurance. 
uh, they're not always going to narrow it down to, are you doing drag racing? Are you doing autocrossing? Are you doing vintage NASCAR? Uh, so broadly speaking, you can buy insurance for motorsports applications. And like we were talking about at the, at the beginning of the show, I mean, you can have a $600 car that you go out to the track and have an absolute blast with. And most of the folks, you could probably walk away from a $600 car. But I also know people who literally have $150,000 or autocross cars. You don't want to hurt that car. You know, I mean, or more, you know, it's, I'm, I'm sure there are several three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars autocross cars out there. If you take your your super trofeo out for the weekend and you want to go around some cones and risk hurting that paint, then it'd be a good idea to probably have some coverage. I'll tell you something that was nerve wracking. The dart that we built, that car cost a lot of money to build. And I, I had to autocross that car. <laughs> exactly. So, yep. Yeah. Oh, please. Let yeah. Me you, you wouldn't like it. It pushed <laughs> bad. You would have hated it. <laughs> I tell you what, let, let me be the judge of that by my, for myself, please. I, I would love to call, drive that call, call Brian Frank. He bought it at Barrett Jackson. <laughs> okay, cool. I was, I was a little, I was a little nervous. Especially when you were talking to Will, we touched on a lot of little things that were some of the questions, you know, you touched on being insured while my car's in my trailer and I'm driving it to an event. Okay, I go out, I buy, I buy something in California, 100 grand, and I'm going to have it shipped by a reputable shipper. I'm not going to use any of the names, but the orange trucks or the green and white trucks or something like that. I'm going to have it shipped here to Alabama. At what point do I need to buy insurance for that vehicle? The, the moment I buy it and the, the, the money's wired, the moment it gets on the transporter, or is it insured on that transporter until it gets here? Can I put it off until the day before it arrives? Or what's your recommendation there? Or on the flip side, I own the car and I'm shipping it to Pebble or I'm shipping it to the Concours of America and that, and I'm putting it on one of those trucks. I know they carry some sort of insurance, but is there anything that you recommend to further protect me and obviously my property? Uh, just kind of as a safety measure. <laughs> Great question. If that, it's actually um, asked quite a bit, especially I travel to a lot of car auctions. All of the uh, trucking uh, companies are there, you know, filling up trucks and sending cars all across the country. And it always comes up like, oh my gosh, when, when is that point I should insure the vehicle? To be honest, they, a gray area or a window of, of new purchase acquisition, like when you purchase the car, it really is a when did you transfer money? Do you have the title in hand? What is state recognizes you transfer the title? There's lots of legal sort of ramifications of a transaction. Insurance guy as a car guy, as soon as you've like paid money, you've got maybe a bill of sale or you've taken the keys, you've taken that first step towards buying the car. That's when you, I recommend putting insurance on the car, whether you're going to go pick it up and trailer it home or drive it home yourself, or if you bought it out of state, and you're having a transport company get it in two weeks' time. You want to protect yourself for your financial responsibility. You've, you've got this car. You've committed to buying it. Maybe you've signed a, a bill of sale. Maybe you've wired a deposit, and you're waiting for the signed title to arrive in the FedEx the next day. I would err on the side of CYA. You've got to just protect yourself first. Put that insurance policy. Get a, you know, get a date started for your insurance policy. That's, that's what any claims agent is going to look at as well. What are the effective dates for your policy? Well, you know, the policy started on May 1st and, uh, you know, you bought the car April 25th and you're telling me the damage happened on April 26th. Well, can't do anything about it, you know? So 
I would err on the side of insuring the car as soon as you've just committed to it, right? There's no sense in waiting two weeks or three weeks to put insurance on it because you're just postponing when you have to write the check, but it's going to be the same check for the insurance premium, whether you write it today or two weeks from now. To your question about shipping logistics, when you've purchased a car, again, you want that policy uh, out there covering you from the time you own the car. That way, if you ever have a claim or anything wrong, you've got the insurance company working for you. Rather than, let's say you bought the car, hired a trucking company to transport it, it's in their control. Like Will's comments about uh, garage keepers coverage, a trucking company has motor truck cargo insurance for all the stuff inside their trailer. Well, that's only covered for their responsibility. And then we don't know what type of policy they bought. They could have bought a $100,000 policy or a $5 million policy. And we don't know how much it's going to cover you for your car. If your car, you know, the car, another car in the trailer catches fire, catches your car on fire, the trucking company may not be responsible and they're not going to pay to fix your car. And you didn't put insurance on it, you're going to fix your car yourself. Trucking companies do have insurance. The question is how much. That's a very important question to ask your shipping agent uh, or that trucking company and, and to understand how it's going to respond to your vehicle. And that example of another car catching on fire, you've got insurance policy on your car while it's in transit. Your policy, you're going to be able to turn in a claim and say, hey, my car was with this carrier being shipped across the country. Another car in the truck caught fire caught my car on fire. It's not my fault. I'm going to turn in a claim, bring it to Will's shop. He puts up an estimate and you work, I work, and you work with a customer directly with your insurance company. They work with you because they're your ally. They're going to fix your car. And if there's any negligent party, they're going to subrogate against who's at fault. So maybe it's found that that other car that caught fire, it, it was their fault for leaving the fuel on and the fuel pump was running and there was hot exhaust. Any number of reasons why something would catch on fire because they're negligent. They let the two insurance companies duke it out behind the scenes. Meanwhile, you and Will are working on getting your car fixed and getting back on the road and so forth. I always err on just get the insurance started right away and get that effective date started to protect you because that's really your, your backstop, your, your, kind of your bookend for the policy year. You're saying long as I have a policy on the car, I, I should be reasonably covered. It's not going to exclude the vehicle because it's being transported. And I'm only talking domestic shipping. We're not even going to get into international stuff. I'm good there. And the other recommendation is yep. the moment that say, you know, I'm, I'm at Bear Jackson, I'm on TV on a Saturday afternoon and I just paid $2.3 million <laughs> for, you know, Jeff Gordon's, you know, Monte Carlo or whatever. I signed my bill of sale. The first thing I should do as I'm sitting down is to pick up the phone and call you and say, hey, I bought this and this is what I think the VIN number is and we're, we're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> Wishful thinking. That would be an ideal situation. Let's, uh, I mean, I've been to Bear Jackson, been to a lot of auctions. And that's usually the last thing you want to think of doing is calling the insurance guy. However, most collector car policies come with automatic new purchase coverage. If you are at an auction event or if you buy something on Craigslist or what have you, generally speaking, you've got about a 30-day window to report to the insurance company that you bought a car on this day. That's a pretty long leash uh, for people, and uh, it's easy to forget paperwork and, uh, oh, did I do that thing? Was I supposed to call my insurance guy? So 
it's a good practice to, you know, make the, the purchase. If you're at an auction, chances are your insurance company might have a booth there and you can give notice to a representative there. Or I've, a lot of my customers text me, there's a screenshot or a bill of sale or something, and I could start the process and start documenting those dates. And we can follow up on critical paperwork if necessary when they get back to their home office or, you know, the week after the auction event. John, to your point, Best thing to do is, yeah, call your guy, your 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 representative, or go online to your uh, insurance company, get it added to your policy, kind of get that date stamp, but also be mindful that you've got automatic new purchase coverage. Some some have varying amounts that might be equal to the most expensive car you have in your policy. Sometimes it might be capped at twenty five thousand, um, just to kind of get you started. And then that's until you call in and say, hey. I bought this car two weeks ago in Scottsdale. It's lot number one, two, three. They can download the photos off the website, add it to your policy, and essentially they're honoring that 30-day window and they can backdate, start the policy the day you bought it uh, and protect you. And then you can also confirm with them that you've had uh, you didn't have any losses, you know, while it was at the auction field, because you don't necessarily take possession right away while you're at the auction weekend. Sometimes if you leave it there for a day or the shipping company doesn't pick it up until two days after the auction. So um, you can make sure that you don't have a loss uh, while it's out of your uh, out of your eyes and then possession. What you've said there makes sense. I mean, if I go out and I buy a car, you know, just because I go to the Ford dealer and buy a new Mustang, mm-hmm. they, I know I've got a 30 day window. But at this point, I don't have any collector cars in my garage, anything that's insured like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I go and I buy an, an Esprit at, you know, Russo. I'm really not going to get that 30-day window because I don't have any established collector car insurance. I can't call XYZ insur- collector car insurance and say, mm-hmm. hey, you know, 15 days after and say, hey, I bought this car 15 days ago, blah, blah, blah. But on the way home from the auction, I crashed it and, you know, there, you're, you're saying that 30-day window, or I want to make sure it's clear, that 30-day window is going to kind of more apply to an existing customer or has a better chance of applying to an existing customer rather than, you know, Joe Tiger guy who just bought something. You're absolutely right. It's a, it's a great you point. Said, you said Joe Tiger guy. <laughs> Have you been? Have you been watching? Yeah, I just that? keep seeing it on my Facebook feed. <laughs> uh, now, a big, a big question that comes up all the time, and I get it all the time as an appraiser. I got it all the time, and I want you to explain it because even some mornings I wake up and I get the terms reversed: stated value and agreed value. What do I want that's going to protect my whatever is worth one hundred and fifty thousand dollars today? And when I crash it. Three years from now, I want $150,000 for it. Policy, do I really want to buy? Which one, you know, I'm not even going to get into a little of the details that I know. Which one do I want to own or which one's more favorable for me as the consumer? Yeah, for any car collector um, owning a vehicle that they want to put insurance coverage on, that they're, they're the car, it's very prideful ownership of that vehicle. It's important to them. It's, it's a family member. It's a child. The, the key term you're looking for for an important car like that to ensure is guaranteed value. You want that guarantee that if you bought it for $150,000, uh, you want to insure it for one hundred fifty. That way, if there's ever a covered total loss, you're going to get checked back to that $150,000. So it's, uh, you know, look for the guarantee, as they say, what's on the Callahan Auto Parts. It's on the box, you know? 
<laughs> guaranteed value. And that stated value is uh, sort of a carryover term from the standard market uh, insurance, your, your Allstate, Geico, State Farm, your, your normal everyday insurance. Stated amount is a loose term for like book value or uh, a depreciated amount. Uh, it sounds like it's agreed upon or something concrete, but it really is an open door to apply some subjectivity to depreciation, mileage, you name it. If you're a car guy or girl looking to insure a very important car, you, you'll want to see on your insurance policy that talks about a guaranteed value. Everything else you can really disregard, for, especially when it comes to collector cars and vehicles, both boats, motorcycles, Alice Chalmers, trailer tractors, and stuff like that. Go karts. <laughs> I think if you're willing to write the check, they're willing to write a policy. Have you ever yeah, insured yeah. a go-kart, Adam? I, I have not insured a go-kart. <laughs> and, um, but I will say you can. However, it may not be for like running in the streets or on your track across the way. I've seen a lot of collectible go-karts that are essentially hanging on the wall like motorcycles. Oh, yeah. And it, that, that kind of falls into the automobilia, you know, the, the ephemera that goes with the cars, the oh. gas pumps, neon signs, all that cool garage art. That's, that's stuff that I can ensure and a lot of guys do because they could have several hundred thousand dollars worth of cool garage stuff. You know, their homeowner's policy may not respond to that or have no idea how to fix an old Wurlitzer jukebox or a porcelain, you know, gas pump. Like it's nice to have a, a collector car insurance company look after those things too. But uh, no, go karts. I mean, you could yours could be the first. Will you know? It could be fun. <laughs> Will needs a Will needs a short wheelbase vehicle. That's five right. horsepower policy. <laughs> Fourteen. All right. All right. Look. Look. You, you guys have all had you. You guys have all had mediocre questions here. Okay. All right. Look, Adam. I've got. All right, Derek. My 19, 1919 Chevy 490 touring car. Yep. Everybody's talking about, I want to trailer my car across country. I want to trailer it to a show. I want to drive my car to work. Okay. How often? What, How many times do you want to drive to work? Every sunny, warm day there is. Every sunny, warm day. So, And I live in Kentucky, so it's a lot. You live in Kentucky. It's a lot. Okay, so you're going to have nine, you know, nine months out of the year that you could tough it out. Uh, even more if you wanted to. There are some collector car insurers that will allow you to drive it to work, to use it for errand running or for purposes outside of normal collector car use and activity. And I don't mean to be vague, but because car guys, we're all sneaky, right? We all want to just go drive and have fun. But there are the insurance people who are experts and, you know, they want to make sure they charge the right premiums to fix these cars once they do break. Because there's other people driving cars out there that just tend to drive into old cars because they stare at them. So to all protect one another, we got to limit our driving a little bit. But there isn't, to my knowledge, I haven't come across a policy that will provide guaranteed value for your particular car for daily driving. I shouldn't say never because in the insurance world, you can just be just about get anything done, just whether or not you want to pay for it. So it goes, kind of goes back to track insurance. If you can afford it, you know, it can get done. But out of the most standard out of the box collector car insurance policies, they're going to have a limitation on how frequently you can take your car to work uh, or drive it on a nice sunny day. That limitation, I could say, you know, Derek, comfortably, if you do it a couple of times a month, I think you're going to fall within the guidelines. If um, you have a really good heart-to-heart -heart conversation with your agent or underwriter insurance company and provide 
here is a photograph of uh, my dedicated parking spot at my place of work, or it's indoors and I have security cameras. My commute is only three miles long and it's on, you know, back roads and you show them a Google map, like you would need to argue your case and, and demonstrate why this is a good risk, why this is reasonable, why you think it's so fair, articulating that I'm a car guy, I built this myself, it's one of my 17 cars in my collection, I work in the automotive business, or you got to paint the picture. And that's what I do for a lot of my clients when I'm working with insurance companies is, is you just got to understand the car collector, their use for it, and how is that insurance policy going to respond. And uh, unfortunately, someone does have to say no when it comes to, well, you can't drive it that much to work or that often that just falls out of the comfort level of the insurance policy or the underwriter in terms of how frequently you drive it. I'd say two, three times a month, you're, you're doing okay, but it definitely uh, warrants having a conversation with your agent and your insurance company on what, they, what they're comfortable with because they'll be writing the check if and when you ever turn in a claim. Yeah, so, so what I just heard was all the more reason to have a 15 plus car collection because then you just rotate the cars out every day and you're only driving you know, one car a couple times a month. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> exactly right. They're... Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly what I just heard. So, I mean, I'm up to four cars in my collection, so I think I'm, I'm getting close to a good rotation on those cars. Well, the wannabe lawyer in me always thought back when I had my caterum and stuff, and you know, it had its limited use policy, I could drive it to automobile events. Well, I worked in an automobile museum, so every day was an automobile event for me. So eh, I don't know if it would actually fly, but you might I mean, want to try yeah, that one. I mean, that's, that's, that's where I'd go with it, exactly. And, 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 you know, like he said, I mean, he said a three-mile, you know, back road trip. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, there's a three in there. I mean, 36, you know, mile, whatever. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's it, it's maybe about an hour drive on back roads to work. I mean, that's nothing. Come on, that's not like taking, there's no risk there. Come on. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a conversation with, uh, with the underwriter and with back roads, any circumstances. I mean, we all, we all have exposures. John driving to the, to the track or with me living in Los Angeles, I had an office at the Peterson Museum. I was going to an automotive venue every day and could argue the same course, but you have to, there's that reality check of, okay, what, how much exposure, how much road time is that car getting? Um, the traffic density, I mean, it can get really kind of neurotic. It's worth a conversation. I mean, when I'm sure, Will, when you build a car, there's a ton of back and forth about how you want to fit and finish, how the steering needs to feel, the driver position. Like you've got a conversation with your car owner. I mean, when you can have a conversation with your underwriter or your insurance guy and everyone's on the same page, how you're, you're, what, how and what you're doing with it and understand the safeguards you're doing with your car when you're taking it to work or uh, the track, like as long as you're an understanding, anything can get done. Derek, are you done with your line of questioning? Because I've got a kind of a big one that's been proposed or presented to me a couple of times recently. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I am. But if I come up with something, I'll interrupt you, John. Don't worry. I know you will. <laughs> I have a two-car garage at home. I have full of woodworking tools. Mm -hmm. um, I have my cars in the driveway. And I guess there's a car in the driveway I should ask you a question about, too. Now I went out and bought this collector car and I want to put it in a mini storage down the street or I want to put it in a collector car storage facility you know fire mm -hmm. suppression secured blah 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 building that's designed for storing collector cars 
Yeah, cool. That's obviously not going to fall under my homeowner's policy. Is it going to fall under the collector car policy? Do I need to add a rider? And that'll also move us in kind of to your automobilia statement earlier. Mm-hmm. What about the extra parts? What about the tools um, that gotcha. I might want to have to go with that, that I'm keeping at that facility? Most collector car insurance policies, insurance companies know they're going to, everyone's going to start by asking the question, where's the car going to be garaged? More often than not, typically collector cars are garaged at home. Uh, there are several people out there who have multiple garaging locations, or maybe they have a um, office warehouse and they keep their cars at their place of work, a hangar, you know, a second house or a detached garage. So collector car policies are going to respond wherever the car is you know, garage kept overnight. And that's assuming they've already accepted and had a, we've had a conversation about where it's where it's garage kept. If it's in your neighbor's garage across the street, all the insurance company needs to know is the address. And you know, okay, what are, what are the security features over there? Is it, you know, locked door? Is the garage door closed? Has it got, you know, three walls, a door and a roof? Is it safe? That's a private um, use storage uh, locker down the street. Just what's the address? It doesn't have a, a, a gate. Just the insurance companies just want to know that when you're not driving it, it's kept in a, in a, a locked in a safe environment. And there's lots of degrees of safety and, and security. And of course, the more, the better. And the higher um, collection value you have, you might start to realize some pricing discounts and considerations if you've got alarms and central station burglar uh, and fire alarm or sprinkler systems or security cameras, that sort of thing. Generally speaking, collector car policies are going to follow wherever that car is garage kept. Even if it's at Will's garage for a month or six months, uh, insurance companies know cars have to go out and get repaired and come back. If you've got a, a winter home in you know, Montana or a summer home in Florida and you move cars back and forth, they just really need to know the address and the security features there. And John, you mentioned one important to note about like the driveway. There are a couple of insurance companies who are collector, collector car insurance companies who are expanding their underwriting appetite to accept cars, classic cars in carports and then driveways or even like in backyards and fenced enclosures. For the longest time, that was a strict no-no. Uh, it was just, we, you know, everyone wanted the security of a garage environment. Uh, you can think of, you know, you don't drive your car very often. So a garage environment is really, it's really it's most exposed, just sitting there. But, you know, you got your, your wife's car coming in and out. You got the kids playing in there. You got ladders and woodworking equipment. That's a lot of exposure. But what they learned is that, well, cars left outside, you know, they've got wind and there's other things in hail that could happen to them. But in all likelihood, it doesn't happen that often. So some of the companies started experimenting with offering coverage, driveway and carport situations and found that there wasn't a terrible loss ratio and started offering considerations in certain geographic areas across the country. So you got a carport or a lean-to off the side of your garage, you've got a backyard, even keeping it in your car trailer on the side of your house can qualify in some instances. Uh, what you're going to want to do is just like take really good pictures and again, help the underwriter understand where you're going to keep it and how it's protected and argue the case why it's safe. Um, and uh, we can probably find you policy or a coverage while it's in your driveway or on the side. And since Derek took this advantage to talk about one of his cars and in this this last question, this crossed my mind. Yeah. Uh, last fall, we purchased a former SEMA show car upper five figures and modifications, blah, blah, blah. It's a wide body Cadillac ATS uh, with a lot more under the hood modifications and things like that. Now it's used as a daily driver now. We didn't pay a fortune for it. If it gets into, it's being used as a daily driver, it gets into an accident on the interstate on the way to work. 
Mm-hmm. Um, should I have additional riders on the policy for that? You know, something that I guess my question is daily driven, you know, modified car. Uh, when I was at McPherson, I had uh, my uh, CRX and it was, you know, mm-hmm. Coney drops, uh, coilover dropped and aftermarket wheels and things like that. And I hit I hit a dead deer on the way to school one morning. And of course, State Farm worked with me and, you know, they kind of watched out for me. But, you know, mm-hmm. now I'm talking, we wrecked this ATS and it's going to all of a sudden, instead of being a GM quarter panel, it's got to be a custom fabricated quarter panel that matches the other side of the car, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What riders should be in place? Or is that something that when it happens, I just go to whatever insurance company and mm-hmm. say, you know, have you had this happen before? <laughs> Good. I work with a lot of people who similar situations where their daily driver is their only and their their only car or their show car. It's their passion, whether it's a, an autocrosser or if it's a show car to some extent. Again, when you can afford it, there is guaranteed value insurance coverage for a car like yours um, that's used every day. With a company like State Farm or any other standard market insurance company, I would err on the side of sort of how do you claim proof um, your insurance policy or your vehicle? So I would have, uh, I always recommend to talk about like the three ring binder. Um, Will, I'm not sure when you build cars, what sort of portfolio or documentation you have with your car. But I think because, you know, all our backgrounds are in restoring cars. Like I I like to have a a binder of like parts list, fabrication hours, time. Um, John, I can think with, with your car, there's probably magazine articles photos, period stuff. Like I would document your car to say that, okay, this is not a normal Cadillac. This is a Cadillac that's been modified and I want my my policy to respond accordingly. Okay, insurance company who I'm already doing business with, what options do we have? You know, I, I'm, I'm not ordering off of the normal menu at the drive-up window here. You've probably got something behind the scenes that you don't use very often for a unique situation like me. John, it, it's worth asking more questions with your with your agent or exploring what you can do. But I think you start by sort of claim-proofing your car and having that, that documentation. So if you do hit another deer or get rear-ended, that custom roll pan or fender or quarter panel can get remade by maybe the same shop or another quality craftsman who, you know, going to have to build from scratch or modify a stock piece uh, and go from there. So uh, it's not a very black and white answer. I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, if you can afford it, there's always coverage. How do the rest of us live with, you know, what we can buy off the shelf, tweak the policy just a little bit. And that's really a a one-on-one conversation with uh, your current insurance company or as you start shopping um, with anybody else. I hope that helps. <laughs> kind of know what the answer is, but it's somebody who's in my situ, you know, that situation. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I've had custom, you know, cars all my life, so I've always dealt with additional riders and things. Even as far as back when I had a, a conversion van, I had to have, you know, an additional rider because if it would be crashed, our everyday insurance company looks at it as a Ram cargo van that costs 20 grand, even though I paid $58,000 or whatever for it because of the interior and the high top and the TVs and things like that. They just go off a VIN number as opposed to what the real world is. Unless, you know, it's kind of obvious, but I'm somebody when I have a car accident, I want to get it out of the way and not have to deal with fighting or getting these questions taken care of. 
well, think of like um, even just doing like aftermarket wheels uh, and tires on on auto policies. It, it's it's worth mentioning to your agent that hey, you know, I just dropped another five grand on custom wheels. Is, is my policy going to respond to that, or is it going to put the factory steel wheels back on the car if I ever curb this or do something? So that's where having a relationship and, and a and a good conversation with your agent or your company to kind of just be honest. This is what I got. What can you do for me? And you'd be surprised that there is a lot of wiggle room and there's uh, there's different coverages that might not just be as heavily marketed um, as what they do have on the shelf that might pertain to your to your Cadillac. And this probably should have been the question we started with. In, in the simple ter- simplest terms, what's the difference between me walking into Hartford or Progressive or Geico or State Farm and buying a policy on my 79 MGB worth, say, 10 grand buying a collector car policy. I mean, I've already got mm-hmm. three other cars through name the insurance company, the you know, little lizard guy. Uh, why, why do I all of a sudden want to have to deal with you or another insurance agent? Because you're the last person in the person person <laughs> in the world I want to give money to. Exactly. It's uh, yeah, insurance is like the the second check that you have to write that you didn't know you had to when you buy a car. I think working with car people, when you have that collector car or that, that important car in your life, like you you know it's important because of how you like take care of it. And that should be the gut instinct that says, okay, my standard everyday insurance is does not qualify. And and maybe if anyone could take anything away from this, it's just like, trust your gut. If this car is important to you, insure it on a better policy than what's out there. Um, I work with a lot of, a, a lot of car guys and, and, Think of like artwork, think of jewelry, think of gun collections, um, think of all the audio equipment and stereos, all the cool stuff, like stuff you love, that stuff that you should schedule and insure. So, you know, if your daily driver is just like an appliance and it's a truck and it's for you, it's just it's just a thing and insurance is a necessary evil. Your standard market insurance company it, it does a great job of insuring you for all of your exposures for driving your car every day to work and running and commuting and picking up kids and so forth. When you've got that collector car, uh, hopefully you've got that gut check and you think, okay, this, there's, there's something better out there, or I should be curious, is there something better out there? And that's where that, that guaranteed value policy for that car. I mean, it could be a $5,000 car, can't necessarily be our $1,200 stimulus check vehicle we're talking about earlier, but a lot of insurance companies will go down to around $3,500 or $5,000 for a collector car uh, and insure you there. And that's really going to be, you know, a hundred bucks a year for full coverage at a guaranteed value of $5,000. We're talking a significant savings and insurance premium, and you get that guaranteed value for the car. And as you work on it, fix it, paint it, build a bigger motor, you add value to it, you can always adjust your insurance value on that car. Sean's got something, you take it over to Will's garage and you start with a $10,000 shell. Every major restoration milestone, the rolling chassis is done, the body gets put back on. You've got to, you write another big check to Will to, to, to get the car moving forward. That's a time to you know adjust your insurance policy if you're following it along, or there's even insurance that can you know follow a restoration and ratchet up your coverage every quarter systematically for you if you're on a good restoration schedule. Uh, it's it, awareness. People, people, most people don't know that collector car insurance exists. Talk to your friends. Hopefully you're involved in clubs. Hopefully you listen to some podcasts and watch some videos and people talk about it enough where when you do buy that collector car or you inherit something or you just kind of have that gut that maybe this is, this is more valuable than 
you know, my modern day car. I want to take care of this asset and you can find the right insurance for it. That sound, I mean, that sounds good. It pretty much all the questions I had on my list, like I said, some of these were mine. Some of these <laughs> came from, uh, I know you saw the Instagram post requesting questions from um, fans of the show and that. So we got a few of the questions answered. Hopefully we covered a, a lot. Yeah. Um, I know Sean's over there thinking because he has a, you know, a collector car that, he he doesn't quite know what to do with and the fellow Camaro guy. Will's Will's got to yeah. answer these. Huh? Well, Sean's a fellow Camaro yeah. guy, right? You got a '69. I had a '69. That was my first car. Um, uh, that, okay, yeah, that's that that's a hundred cars ago. <laughs> I'm, 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 <laughs> okay, I'm, I wish I was kidding. Actually, no, I don't. Right now, I've got a, a really <laughs> rare '84 Lawrence wide body 190e Mercedes. It's a gray market car. That doesn't really. Oh, cool. It's just, it's not a very valuable car. That's the thing. And it, I have it insured for, I just declared an actual cash value and it's so low <laughs> compared to what an AMG would be of the same vehicle that my insurance company was like, okay, <laughs> um, they didn't even question it. So I, I didn't even have to have an appraisal of the car to get it insured for what I, what I declared as actual cash value. I, I'm still scared the car is right, going to okay. get hurt. <laughs> you know, I'm, st- I'm still scared the car is going to get hurt. I'm still scared that, and the other side of it is literally like, even though I had this thing declared for, for or insured for actual cash value, the panels, even though I have it declared for actual cash value, it's a car that literally you can't buy fenders for it. You can't buy quarters for it. You can't buy the valence that, you know, the, the front bumper, the rear bumper, the hood, the whole car is completely different than a stock 190e and the parts don't exist right i guess if if that car ever gets hurt it's just totaled instantly i guess is does that sound right or am i thinking completely wrong you're you're correct however this is uh you're not the only one i mean if parts are unobtainable that is a an inherent risk of you know enjoying and owning that vehicle uh there's lots of custom cars out there and i know will can attest to this that you know they're uh, they're, they're, they're not making any more parts and, and they're gone. So everything can be fabricated. I mean, you can, you can restore anything from an ashtray or a serial number. Um, it's just whether or not you got the budget for it. You've got to be, you got to be mindful of your guaranteed value on your policy. Like what is it going to be? If it's a $30,000 insurance policy, will $30,000 cover, you know, repairing, um, a front end collision, or if you if you did get rear ended, could could thirty grand cover someone fabricating and rebuilding, you know, the rear end of the car? And that's a dilemma that many people have when we're talking insured values, ten, fifteen, twenty, fifty thousand dollars, having to restore a car. That's not a very big budget, fairly to fix custom pieces. Now, I will say rapid prototyping, 3D printing, mold making. I mean, if things are getting faster, more efficient, and I believe costs are coming down. I mean, I think Will can comment. As a car owner, collector, the good rule of thumb is just kind of wonder, okay, I'm, all I'm going to get back is 30 grand for this car. If I get hit, I hope I really get hit. So I, you know, I, I walk away safely unharmed, but that the car is so destroyed that I just have to walk away and I take a $30,000 check. You get a $30,000 check, but then it's going to cost you another $30,000 to finish the repairs at a restoration shop. So $60,000 all in. It's an unfortunate predicament. At least you're going to get a check for 30. And that's better than being insured with a standard market insurance 
insurance company, which would give you uh, a stated value or a depreciated amount, which you know we don't know until that day comes. And that's skeleton in the closet that no one wants to deal with. So better to have the guaranteed value up front. So I've, I've, I've got another question, Adam. Yep. Maybe it's a little off track here. I, I Hopefully I'm not getting us off the conversation that was just there, but just got to thinking about it in that conversation. Keep mentioning, you know, having it own a car, you have it at a shop like Wills or you have it at a restoration shop. Now, what if you're a hobbyist with the skills to do your own work at home? You've got your car, project car. And you're yeah. building it yourself. This thing's tore apart to pieces. You buy it as a basket case and you're putting it together, but you've got money invested in it. You've got your time and you know, you've got materials in it. You've got, you, you've got costs that are making this car, at least these parts of cars worth uh, parts of a car worth something before they're all assembled together. It's in your garage at home how are you insuring that? What is the right way to insure a project like that, that you're working on? I mean, you know, God forbid your, you know, your garage catches on fire one night. (laughs) Absolutely. If you bought yourself a $1,200 stimulus check project car, I mean, we can, you know, get it home, uh, get any car, get it in the garage and get, get started working on it. If you're not registering it for the streets, for example, no, you're saying not registering it immediately, but you're working towards being able to drive it on the road. Exactly. So you've got a project car in the garage. You're putting dollars into an asset, into into something physical that your homeowner's policy is not going to respond to. If you're concerned about it being, uh, you know, catching on fire, melting down, and you want your money out of it, that we should get an insurance policy started for it. It would be, you don't need full coverage, so we can reduce that coverage down to comprehensive only, which is that fire, theft, flood, vandalism type material or type coverages. As you like working with any restoration shop, as kind of you meet, uh, reach those milestones uh, in the restoration, we've got significant money tied up into it. It's usually a good trigger point to say, it's time to bump my insured value up or you've, you've bought the restoration coverage endorsement and it automatically raises it every, uh, you know, every, every three months and stuff for you. So, um, and then once your car is ready and let's say you're going to trailer it to the, the body shop or you're going to be uh, moving it to a, another garage, like there's trailering coverage we can add on while you're there. Or once, it's, once it's done and then you're going to roll out of the garage for the first time and go driving it, that's when we call have a conversation, add the collision, add the liability coverage to it so you're safe uh, to drive on the road and you're protected out there. Hope that's fantastic. Sorry, Sean, if I, I, I kind of jumped in there and took anything off track, but it just it popped into my head. No, not at all. No, it totally made sense. A reasonable add-on to what I was going for. Well, I mean, yeah, and I, I think, you know, it, it, that's an important one because a lot of people in this hobby – are are basically trying to be home hobbyists. You know, there there are guys that like cars. You know, maybe they're you know they've got a son. The the son's into cars too, and all of a sudden, hey, we want a father son project. You know, you got to figure out how to how to make sure you're covering that investment. We talk a lot about young kids getting involved in the car hobby. I remember after I graduated from McPherson, my dad's always had collector cars, custom cars that that we drove and enjoyed and. And one of the things he struggled with was getting a 20-year-old, 21-year-old insured while driving a classic car. I can't remember exactly who he wound up going with. A lot of the 
bigger names in the classic car insurance world wouldn't cover unless you were 25 or older. Is Has anything changed with that? What's going on with that? The industry is definitely maturing and getting more comfortable with younger drivers. And this, this goes with just underwriting experience and analyzing all the accidents and losses that have happened with young drivers driving cars. Less of a problem as it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, uh, or it's less difficult rather, let me say that. So if you're a 16, 17, 21, 22 year old kid, if you've got a good driving record, you, got a, you, have, you have a daily driver, you know, and then you have your collector car that you're working on, your project car or motorcycle, there are insurance companies out there now willing to look at you. And sometimes I've had to put, write a policy for like mom and dad and then juniors on there as a, as a driver, collect your car policy, it's collector car rate. Everyone's on the same page that, yeah, this is the son's car. The son's driving it the most. Mom and dad are just on there. That's just satisfying the underwriting profile to kind of fit the square peg in a square hole uh, a little bit better. It's not a no-brainer piece of cake. You got to really got a good driving record. So, you've, uh, which is tough as a 16-year-old car guy. I mean, I, I had tons of speeding tickets and and uh, all kinds of issues. So I know I didn't qualify for the long time <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. myself. Feel everyone's pain, but it, it's gotten better. So I have to say no to some people now and again just because the underwriter just says they can't do it. You know, you, you have too many speeding tickets and you want to insure, you know, a turbo car. They they just they say no. There's there's, there's no. No silver spoon yet. So well, that's that's good to hear that that's available now because it was when I was 15 years old. Heck, I hopped in my dad's 46 Chevrolet and drove home from Knoxville, Tennessee, with him sitting beside me, and it, it was it was no big deal. But once I turned, yeah, I turned you know 20, and I was home from college, and I wanted to hop in the hot rod and and go to town to the cruise night, I couldn't do it. He had to be with me or I had to ride with him. Yeah. And it was it was frustrating, very frustrating. The, the industry is maturing around. There might be an instance where there could be a small surcharge to you know overlook some speeding tickets. Can get done. And a lot of collector car insurance companies want the next generation of car guys to be supported and to be in the hobby. I mean, we all do. We all want to perpetuate the cycle. They're torn because they want to insure you. They want the enthusiasts to be out there. But the reality is it's, you know, it's an inexperienced driver, you know, not just driving to their after school job, but now they're in a, in a high performance possibly or a home built uh, restoration uh, or a car of their own to whatever degree or quality. There's a lot of risk and, and you know, they're in the insurance company and, and they're going to pay to fix it, but they want to make, make sure before right. they accept you that you meet some guidelines. So as a young person, keep your driving record clean, be, be in good terms with your mom and dad because you still might need them <laughs> for a little while, but uh, it's, it's getting a little bit better. Don't get caught. <laughs> yeah, don't get caught. That's the best one. <laughs> and don't tell your insurance guy. <laughs> so <laughs> let, let them find it. Uh, I think, John, um, we had mentioned I wanted to address tools and spare parts and all the accessories, you know, all the cool stuff we all have in our garages and, you know, in our respective offices. Like, you know, if that's important to you, like schedule it, you know, if you've got a big snap on box full of stuff, if you've got, you know, you bought some art uh, Monaco Grand Prix posters, five or $10,000 worth of stuff hanging on your walls, like that's insurable stuff. Like if, yeah, I would hate to see it, you know, get, you know, lost in a fire or flood. No one's going to put that back in your pocket. I mean, you, but you can put some dollars back in your pocket and it's super cheap to insure stuff like that. 
your mom or your wife insures or ring, you know, if there's something really important to you that you would want back or to be compensated with, talk to your, your insurance person and get that scheduled uh, on your policy, whether it's your homeowners or your car policy or garage policy, just be, be aware that it exists and it's out there. And then there's, uh, I think for us, kind of down here in the South, there's some coverage out there called the evacuation expense. Like when hurricanes come around, when floods come around, and we're all we're under a named storm or other sort of significant situation, your insurance policy might subsidize some of your costs to transport your car uh, out of harm's way. I mean, the insurance company would rather spiff you a couple hundred bucks to get your car out of the path of the storm into high ground rather than risk it in a garage and have a tornado or a flood water come through. So I think that one's a big thing out there. And another coverage that I usually recommend is have some sort of like towing coverage. Collector cars just just break down. I mean, they're just, it is the nature of the beast and we've all been there on the side of the road. Uh, it can be confidence inspiring to know that you've got, you know, a flatbed tow truck that's going to come pick you up take you to the nearest shop, or if you're on a driving rally, it'll take you to the next hotel stop or, or, or the nearest restoration shop. That's just even cheaper insurance to have while you're out touring and, and driving with your car, just because of the limited use these cars get. Things freeze up, things have issues. Um, they don't like to work well. So make sure you've got towing coverage. And then, man, put a fire extinguisher like in your car. Like That's a no-brainer. Have it, Absolutely. Have it inside. I mean, there's these cool new things out of Europe. It looks like, you know what a road flare looks like? You know, strike the end, now you get a road flare, put it out for safety. It's a fire extinguisher that's basically a road flare. It's uh, you know, uh, a chemical reaction that turns into basically vapor. It, it, it basically sucks the oxygen out of the air, smothers the fire, and it's about as big as a road flare. And it lasts eight times longer than a little three pound fire extinguisher. If you don't want the big red bottle sitting on your floorboards, they sell these really cool little uh, uh, road flare size uh, fire extinguishers that actually last longer and can put out more fire. So they're halon. Yeah, I think they're ha- actual halon sticks is what they are. I think. Just yeah. don't mix them, mix them up with your road flares. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so keep insurance. Make sure you got your policy. Yeah. I can't remember where I heard it. I don't know if it was from his mouth, but probably safe. I know it's one of your former bosses. Um, he stated that the biggest fear for an insurance company is fire because you can you can restore a car from absolutely any except a devastating fire. The guys with the Tim Special are going to prove that <laughs> wrong, but yeah. restoring it again, I think it's a very you know, safe statement and why they can do the Tim special is what the owner has said is that even though it was in this massive fire and the car, it got so hot, the aluminum melted off of the car. The fire department didn't come in and put water on it. So the car heated up gradually and cooled gradually and kept the frame intact and didn't mess with the metallurgy. If the fire department would have come in, put water, it would have cooled too fast and made a brittle frame and it wouldn't be restorable. That's why that one gets around the fire. That is the absolute scariest thing, I think, to an insurance company is fire. So do whatever you can to prevent that or follow the rule that I was taught when I was 16 that if you see somebody going for the fire extinguisher, shoot them because it's better to let the car burn to the ground. Your choice. You know, not, necessar- not necessarily my rec- you know, recommendation, but definitely when it comes... <laughs> well, when it comes to a modern car, you're always going to have electrical problems and smoke smells and things from that. So 
take care of them. Yeah, we started with brutal. Are we going to end on brutal? That was uh, wow. Well, I I think I'm going to wrap it up. I guess I have one last question for Adam. I know what it is. I know exactly what it is. Is he still on with us? Yes, he is. Uh, is okay. Because I, I mean, I've been, I've been seriously thinking about getting there into collecting is. historic Zamboni. There it is. How do I ensure those? <laughs> Gosh, if it's got a serial number, we can probably we can just ensure just about anything. If you can show passion for it, maybe you've got two or three Zambonis, we can do it. Now, whether or not you're allowed to actually use it as a Zamboni on the ice. Uh, it might just be like a showpiece reserved for your garage or living room, but uh, we could we could probably get that insured for you. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd like to. He I mean, to drive it to work. Uh, no, I don't want to drive to work. I mean, just just if I get invited to do like an exhibition run at like a Red Wings game or something, it'd be something simple. Yes, yeah. um, I, I believe I'd go to the Predators. It's a little bit closer. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, I'm sorry, nobody nobody from Michigan <laughs> likes the Predators. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd love to see a vintage Zamboni. I can't even picture one in my mind. Please let me let me have that opportunity to work on getting you covered. Don't worry, I would love to see that. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna three D print one, and uh, you know we'll we'll have a lot of fun with it. So yeah. Derek actually has a vintage Zamboni. When the steam car starts leaking, it just melts ice. That's a Zamboni. Okay, <laughs> perfect. Um, it's been great having you today, Adam. Um, do you want to? Uh, Go ahead, Ed, and tell us where to find you and Martin International in case somebody wants to uh, contact you and uh, take take part in some of your services. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, website is insuringyourlifestyle.com because car guys, we have lifestyles and do kind of weird stuff. We don't fit the standard mold. So I look after people with fun stuff and insuringyourlifestyle.com is where you can find me. Uh, I'm also pretty uh, reasonably active on Instagram at Martin International. And um, I travel to all kinds of car shows, auctions, driving events. I love to get out there and meet people and uh, happy to have a conversation with anyone talking about cars and insurance and help you solve some problems for you. So thank you for having me again on, John. Really appreciate it. Everyone, it's been great. Well, it's good to see you, buddy. You too. <laughs> we'll have to connect soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, hopefully everybody knows where to find us now. No Driving Gloves, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, no Driving Gloves Pod, Twitter. NoDrivingGloves.com, the web. Uh, look us up. Subscribe. Tell somebody about the show. Hopefully we helped you uh, protect your assets and your lifestyle. I'm out of here, guys. Adios. <laughs> Adios. Later. The, Zamb- the Zamboni lifestyle, right? Kill it. <laughs> Zamboni style. <laughs>